Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I could have backed off, <laughs> but that ain't racing. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all with me to the racetrack. Lord, if you just get me back these 5,000 miles, I got to go and get me back home. I promise you one thing, I won't be back. Don't you ever forget, I'm a daddy too. Well, you should have seen it, that wreck from my side. That ride back from Darlington, from that day forward, I made it my life's commitment to do whatever I had to do to become a Winston Cup driver. Hello and welcome once again to the Scene Vault Podcast, where we know how to spell Tag Geschichter. At least I do, Steve. <laughs> I don't. Come on, give it a try. A T A D. G E S Chick C H I C K T E R. Geschichter. 
Be careful how you say that. <laughs> I know you hired me for some reason, so there you go. I know how to spell Tagashichter's last name. Steve, this week, our guests, man, I, I don't know how we come up with some of these guests, but they are top-notch. Absolutely. This week, we have Dell Inman right. joining us. Most people, Steve, know about his relationship with Richard Petty and how they grew up together and how they're related. I believe they're cousins. Right. But... What I didn't know that much about was his time between stints with Petty Enterprises because he left shortly after the 1981 Daytona 500 right. to go to work for team owner Rod Osterland and this kid by the name of Del Earnhardt. Right. I wanted to know a little bit about that time. I think that's a time in his career that most people do not realize what took place. Because he left the Petty Enterprises, it seems to some people that he drifted into a void, but he did not. Well, you think about the drivers that he worked with. Exactly. In those few years that he was... Tim Richmond and a championship with Terry Labonte. And Dale Earnhardt. Correct. All three of those guys are NASCAR Hall of Fame caliber right. drivers. They're not all in the Hall of Fame yet, but they will be right. one day hopefully, you think about the impact that he had on those drivers. Now, he didn't win a race with Dale, but he had a good excuse because they kind of went through a, yeah. you know, kind of a tough spell. Yeah. yeah the team was in chaos, basically, when he got there. He led Tim Richmond to the first two wins of his career. Correct. And then won a championship with Terry Labonte. How about that? So, yeah, that conversation was awesome. So that's the first segment. The second segment that we have with the Cup Circuit going to Bristol this week, we're going to be talking about the 1990 Valleydale Meets 500 Uh, at Bristol. Well, Rex and Temper. That's about the way to describe that one. (laughs) I don't know how long that segment's going to last, but we've got a ton to talk about. There was the cup race yeah. that wound up with a great, great finish. Right. There was a the little bit of controversy that yes, you mentioned. I, I think so. But the day before uh-huh. was the wreck that Michael Waltrip had. That's right. And we talked a little bit about it last week, but we didn't really go into detail because I kind of thought that we would discuss it this week. But that was a jam-packed week. Yes, it sure was. And I tell you, Michael's wreck is one of the worst I've ever seen. I would not have been surprised had the absolute worst happened but it did not very fortunately and finally steve patreon continues to pay off for us we've got increased support from ryan markham we've got new support from sean mccardle and also i wanted to mention and he's somebody that i haven't mentioned yet and that's my fault i should have mentioned him the very first episode and every episode since eric quinn formerly the fitness and rehabilitation director from mro motor racing outreach i got to know him then when we work together in the sport, he is now the IT director of this company up in New York. And Steve, he has personally built the website, The Scene Vault. Really? At no charge. Oh. And I can tell you, he's put some time into it. I'm sure he has. He's done an excellent job, by the way. He loves this sport, number one. And number two, he loves the history of the sport. And he has been supportive of getting these papers digitized from the very beginning. He's been supportive of the website. He also designed the Scene Vault podcast logo. Eric, you're an artist. (laughs) (laughs) So this week, we have a conversation for our exclusive content for our Patreon supporters, in which Steve and I discuss our first books. So uh, my listen- only book I might add. <laughs> so here's a short clip. 
The first color proofs that I got, Adam and Jesse were, I think, five months old, maybe six. Jeannie had gone on down to the conference, and I had just woken up and everything, and I was in shorts and a T-shirt and all that, hadn't showered or shaved or anything like that. Got a call from the front desk saying, you've got a package here, and I knew what it was. Mm -hmm. Steve, I got so excited that I loaded both of the boys up into their strollers. Both of them Dirty diapers, right? Both of them had... (laughs) Let's just say they were fully loaded. <laughs> okay. Stuck them in the stroller, started wheeling them down. But to get to the front desk at the resort where we were at, you had to go down this long hallway where the you know the conference rooms were. About halfway down this hallway, the conference takes a break. And there I'm standing with my boys, both of them with dirty diapers, me standing there looking like a bum, hat and shaved, hat and showered, my hair everywhere, and every judge in the state of North Carolina walks out into this hall. <laughs> and gets a load of you. <laughs> and a load I of the boys' loaded else. diapers, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And I was like, hey, honey. <laughs> <laughs> now, Steve, can you picture me in that hallway with my kids in a stroller, both of them in dirty diapers? <laughs> and then my wife's conference letting out and us being greeted by every single district court judge in the state of North Carolina. Can you imagine that? No, I cannot imagine. <laughs> the only thing I can imagine about all of that is the dirty diapers. Dirty diapers. <laughs> and let me tell you, if, if dirty diapers doesn't convince you to help us out on Patreon, I don't know what will. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, a one-time deal, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Every little bit helps. Dale, after all those years with Petty Enterprises, at what point did Rod Osterling contact you for the first time about maybe making the switch? He had talked to me a while, you know what I mean? And uh, I don't know, you know, he is from California and everything. And, uh, you know, and then, golly, in 81, we, you know, went to Daytona and won the race, you know. And I guess that just set him off again and – and we had worked our butts off, I mean, to get yeah. ready for Daytona. We went down there with a Dodge, and it run so bad we didn't test for a half a day and come home, turned it in at Buick, and then went back and got lucky and won the race. And there had just a lot of things turned up there that um, that it seemed like it was just time for me to move on. And um, wasn't that acquainted with Earnhardt, didn't know what I was getting into. And I knew he was young and re- reckless at that time, so that's kind of where I wound up going for – you know, I I told Richard, I said, um, right after Daytona, made, kind of made the announcement. I said, I want to stay with you two more races, even though I know your dad will want me to leave. And um, he said, okay. And that's the way it was. So we went to Richmond and had a little trouble with the clutch and run third. Should have won that race and was leading Rockingham with two to go and ran out of gas and should have won that one. Then we, my first race with Earnhardt was in Atlanta. Well, to clarify... Yeah, uh, I need to ask that this was not a necessarily a schism with Petty because you felt uh, perhaps you'd gone as far as you were going to go with Petty's, or was it just? Uh, uh, it, it certainly I, I wasn't. I just want to clarify it, it was no. It certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't mine, Richard's relation. If that's what you're saying. Well, yeah. If, if there was some 
family stuff, knowing what I was doing. Maybe I was wrong or something, but uh, it was just it was just time for me to move on with the situation the way it was at that point in time without bringing up anything. But uh, it certainly wasn't me and Richard because we sit down over there where the museum is right now, and both of us just sat on the floor and just yeah probably teared up a little bit. Yeah. But uh, but we'd been gosh we'd been close so long, and I mean you know I don't I don't hardly know life without him. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. He was born right here on this property, and I was born on the property about three-quarters of a mile over here. The house is not there, but his, the house he is born in is still here. So, you know, that's our relation, and, and it, it, it hadn't changed from, yeah. from day one. I read in an old issue of Grand National Scene that Rod had first approached you, I think, sometime in 1978. So this is basically two and a half, three years later that you actually make the move. At what point did you actually start thinking about really and truly doing it? I don't know exactly when he did, but you know, I'd I'd got acquainted with him, you know, and and just you know, he might have brought it up, but you know, uh, when I took the job, <laughs> Bud Moore came up to me and said, "If I know you was looking for a job, I'd hire you." You know, <laughs> I said, uh, "Bud, I wasn't looking for a job. They come to me." And two or three people said that, but that made me feel good, you know, and. Uh, I don't know where it goes back quite that far or not, but he, he had talked to me about it. and uh, But, you know, just like bringing Jack Roush up, this is another story. I said, Jack, you got to remember, you was a Yankee, and you come down here, and I was about the only one that would talk to you. And he said, I know that. And I said, if I knew you was going to stay this long, I wouldn't have talked to you. So that's kind of a joke, and that's kind of the way. And I don't think the world we race in today is quite like that. There's too much... You know, they's, the drivers just can't socialize like they used to and the owners and all that stuff because there's just so many people that they, you know, most of them have to run through the garage to keep from so mm-hmm. they can get anywhere. And, yeah. and and I'm not against it. I'm just saying how much different it is now. Once you went to work for Rod, how was it personally to adjust racing against the 43 car? Well, I always knew where the 43 was and, and – um, I don't think I graded that. I, I certainly wasn't pulling against him, you know what I mean? But if if you want to bring up when Buddy Baker was here running for us and Pete Hamilton, I wasn't pulling for Pete and Buddy. I was pulling for Richard, you know, <laughs> because I, I was hit. I thought I was his crew chief, and I guess I was. And, uh, but, uh, and you know, even Richard run a lot when his dad was still running. And I don't think I graded that, but I certainly – I don't know what we had any other. We had Buddy and Pete, and of course, Pascal drove for us. Jim Pascal yep. was a great racer, yeah, you know, yeah. and and you know, I see where he's up for the Hall of Fame this year, you know, and uh, they just uh, you just don't know how good he was at, at his time. You know, I could tell some good stories about him that was funny, you know, but he uh, he was real good, and I I wasn't pulling for Jim, I wasn't pulling against him, but I was pulling for Richard. <laughs> Now, you mentioned the 1981 Daytona 500, and that came down to a call basically that you made in the pits. Was there ever a point that day where you maybe kind of second-guessed yourself and, and maybe thought about staying? No, I'm not like that. Yeah, Once, once you, I made, I knew what I was going to do, and and it was part of it. And, of course, Mary went down there with my wife, and, of course, I think I teared up after the race. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, you were pretty emotional in victory. And line. I think I told her that I'd – be home soon but you can't believe how hard we worked to get off get down there you know what i mean and uh but uh 
Yeah, that was a that was a big race for us, you know. And I think Bobby's still a little bit mad at us over that. <laughs> but we're we're the best of friends now, and we can kid about all that stuff. What was your impression? Your first impressions of uh, over at Oslin of Dale Earnhardt? Well, you know, we know Earnhardt was still young, and I think he didn't win a championship, hadn't he? He was the uh, defending champion. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I just I just took the job on, just like. That was what I was supposed to do, you know, and uh, I didn't know that, you know, it didn't last long because Rod got in trouble and then Stacy bought the thing out, you know, and boy, I, I said, what am I? and that's when I got concerned about what, yeah. what I'm doing now. And then, you know, I still lived here in Level Cross and drove to uh, over in the Charlotte area to to work on the car, and that, that wasn't much fun because I, when I worked here, I was about – two minutes away you know and you, then you put <laughs> yeah. up about an hour and a half and uh but I, you know i was just as dedicated to him as i could be you know and, and i guess the worst thing on my resume i never want to never want to race with him we, it was a situation at riverside that happened that i think we should have won it but we kind of got hoodooed on that one we, <laughs> we won't go into that but uh oh come on <laughs> no, but we uh you know we ran second a couple of times we we, we was going to win texas and had a loose left rear wheel to at the end of the race and uh but uh if you not to win a race with dale earnhardt that's not good on your resume now you were not hired as the crew chief they had kind of a co-crew chief situation going on i think with doug richard and eddie jones what was your role no i think i went over as crew chief (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay but but they they accepted me good yeah i mean you know they wasn't no they wasn't no problem that with that and uh and Eddie Jones, especially. I mean, he yeah. he he was. I could I could depend on him anything, and I I think all that worked out good. So you were calling the shots on race day. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, these. Well, we didn't have the big boxes and everything like they had <laughs> yeah. today, yeah. and all the computers. But uh, I I think I was. I don't think I was changing tires anymore. But um, probably at Daytona, I was still changing tires when we won the race and. Yeah, eighty-one with Richard, one but forty-five year old win, I think. <laughs> Spring change in you know, and that's the reason I'm going to the doctor Wednesday about my back. I hear you. <laughs> you said you felt a little uncomfortable with the sale of the team coming around with Stacy. Yeah, that had to be a kind of. Well, it kind of caught me off guard that he was in money trouble when he was, you know, flying back and forth to California to yeah. the races and everything, and. Uh, my salary increase wasn't that much. It was a little bit more, and uh, they'd furnished me a car and all that stuff. But uh, it, that kind of caught me off guard. And and the bad part about it, Earnhardt didn't accept it at all. Mm-hmm. He he yeah. just didn't understand. Stacy had been in it one before, I guess, with Harry Hyde somehow. And yeah, there was, yeah. There yeah. was some kind of trouble there. And I that blew know. up. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened <laughs> So to there, speak. But, but his name wasn't very good getting into racing. And, of course, um, he he was great for me, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'd done everything I could for him. But Earnhardt didn't last long with us, you know what I mean. And uh, he went with – did he go with Bud Moore or Childers right after Childress. that? He went to Childers that season in 81 yeah. and then went Rider to Bud Moore. Rather cut a deal with Childers. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Car. And uh, we uh, – Golly, he, we, Daytona 4th of July was the first race with uh, Stacy, And him and his wife took me and my wife, Mary, out to a high place in Daytona 
way up and, and stays to give the waiter a little bit of money to pay, uh, set us close to where we could see the ocean and all that. And his wife had a big diamond cluster pear shaped ring on there. He said, That's the most beautiful ring I've ever seen. Is it real? And I could have killed her. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I can't remember tying my shoes this morning, but I remember that, you know. But, uh, and we had a, you know, but our, the relation with, um, Stacy was good. It was just was it really? It, it wow. was always shaky, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. And uh, he had a lot of people hanging around with him. And if if the cold hadn't took a dip about along then, I think everything would have been pretty cool, you wow. know, because he had his name on a lot of cars at that time. Yeah. You know? What seven? Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Seven. And, uh, he had some deals that was going to be pretty good for me, and then I guess cold just took a dip at that time. And he had something. He had a machine that went in the, the strip mining thing up there in West Virginia that would go back in there 30 feet where there's only getting about 10 foot of the coal. And I don't know what happened to the coal business because I was trying to keep up with the race car, you know, <laughs> but everything went to pot on that too. And then I got lucky with uh, Billy Hagan come to me, you know, at the end of the 82 season. Yeah. Made a deal with him and Terry. Now, did Earnhardt talk to you about leaving before he left? No, not really, but I know he wasn't a very happy camper. Yeah. yeah. And we went to Daytona that 4th of July that Stacy bought the team first. And, golly, there was smoke. Ever. I mean, it was just so smoke, smoky you couldn't see. And somebody went out there to practice, and, gosh, here they come wide open. I said, who in the world's that? And it was Earnhardt. So, <laughs> <laughs> see, I hadn't been around him long, but he, he – he he just wasn't a happy camper with that, and some of it was uh, Robert Harrington. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Booby. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Stacy didn't like you calling him Booby. Now he wanted to yeah. call him Robert, and he was he was Stacy's right hand man. Now, but you're talking about Rector and Eddie Jones. I don't know. It just it just didn't work out that good. Even though me and Stacy got along good. Yeah. Didn't Tim Richmond win a couple of races with you the next year? Yeah, we. Uh, I think Joe Rutman got in for us to start yeah. with, and um, first race was at Michigan, and him and his brother came, and uh, I wrote down the setup and showed it to him. You know, I said this this might help us a little bit because we hadn't ever been together, and you hadn't drove much Cup cars, and <laughs> him and his brother studied, and he said, "Boy, I, I looked at this. Ain't no way in the world this can work." You know, and I said, "Okay," and somewhere during the race, we was running for the lead. You know, and at, at that point in time, on the left trailing arm, we had a cam bolt, and it come loose, and it was moving back and forth. And he, he was smart enough to know that he didn't need to get up there and take five or six liters out, so he backed off. And uh, he done he done a good job. He, he, he come a little bit – he got into cup racing probably when he was kind of a little bit over the hump too, you know. But then – then we got Tim Richmond, and boy, what a gun he was. <laughs> he, he did everything he was supposed to do. Didn't know much about a car, but Lord, <laughs> he could wheel. Yeah. And uh, won both Riversides with him yeah. when we had him out there. And we went out there and had a pretty good car. And he come in and he said, Dale, I can't drive this thing about the second time. And he said, can I get Bobby to take it out? I said, Bobby can't drive that god darn thing Sunday. And I went up there and watched him. Have you ever been to Riverside? Oh, yeah. He come up over to one corner and turned left there and, he come up through there and just throwed the car and just all over the place. And he come in. I said, Tim, just go out there and drive the car like you're driving down the street because it's a pretty good car. We wound up winning the race, you know. <laughs> Not that, but he just relaxed and Lord, what, I mean, just 
he was probably better than the equipment we had at that time, maybe. Mm-hmm. Even that early into his career? Oh, yeah, he, he was going to be wow. something. And I think Earnhardt's made the statement that if he hadn't got sick, he might have upset some of his championships. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it seemed like I've heard it. I didn't hear it from Earnhardt. Personality-wise, how much difference was there working with Tim Richmond and Richard Petty? Tim was fun, you know what I mean. He, but he was Lord. He, he, you know, he, he never. The only time he ever crossed, done anything that really upset me was in Dover, and um, Friday night he went to Atlantic City, and we practiced early. <laughs> oh no! On Saturday, and he he got there. He got there about time that started practice, but there was no way to cross over, and we missed that first practice. Other than that, he is on top of his game. But, uh, you know, I can't compare him and Richard, uh, you know, because me and Richard, we we talked over our family situations. We knew the families. We talked yeah. over our, all the troubles we had, just like you've seen us today. He's looking yeah, at my, yeah, yeah. my blood work, you know, and uh, it, it's been like that with him forever, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't know what – I don't know how Tim got in trouble, but – and I – I don't know where he drank, or I don't know what happened to him, but he he was certainly a he was on top of his game driving a race car. For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. Okay, Steve, first things first. Before the interview even started with Dale, I got there a little bit early and was kind of waiting around the museum. Dale drove up, came in, and he said, I'll see you in a second. I'm going to go back here for a second. And he went back into the back of the museum there. And, you know, I continued to wait for a few minutes. And then he came back out and he said, hey, come back here and say hi to Richard. (laughs) Aha, there we go. Now we're on to something. So I went back and sitting in the storeroom, just behind the museum was Richard Petty. And what was funny is it took me a second to recognize him because he didn't have on a cowboy hat and he wasn't wearing sunglasses. And I was like, who's this guy? <laughs> I would have said the same thing. So then I spent a few minutes talking to Dale and to Richard. And then Dale and I go over to the office across the compound there to get it set up in the interview. And you got there a little bit later and a little bit later you walk in and you're being ushered into the conference room by Richard Petty, man. How about that? How do you work that? How do you arrange that? It turned out when I got to the museum, uh, a lady directed me to uh, the shop office and she took me over there and she said, wait right here and somebody will come and get you. And around the corner, (laughs) Not a secretary or some assistant comes Richard himself and, hey, buddy, how you doing? You know? Did he really? Yes, he really That's did. pretty cool. And took me back to the uh, conference room where you guys were waiting on me, and I was on time. <laughs> Actually, you were a couple of minutes. Late. Okay, 2.33. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> you are just a little bit late. Anyway, I, I won't dock your pay too much, but... <laughs> you really can't. <laughs> out of all the respect that I have for you, it grew even more when I saw Richard Petty <laughs> show you into the room. That was doggone cool. That was cool. And very special, by the way. As for the interview itself, and the reason why I wanted to talk to Dale about this era of his career specifically is, you know, we've heard a lot of the stories about Dale and Richard. Dale always jokes that if, if he had had any kind of driver, he would have won 10 championships or 12 or whatever number he chooses that day. And Richard always responds by saying if he'd had a decent crew chief, you know, he might have won 300 right. races. We know that story. Right. So to think that Dale Inman left Petty Enterprises to go to work for Rod Osterland and Dale Earnhardt right. and then Tim Richmond and then Terry Labonte, and to accomplish everything that he accomplished with those guys, that increases my respect for Dale Inman that much more. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. You know, back when uh, Dale left Penn Enterprises right after the Daytona 500 of 1981, a lot of people were thinking there was a big schism there between Richard and his cousin. There was a family feud going on, something like that. And Dale flatly denied that. He said there was nothing to do with his decisions. The relationship with Richard had nothing to do with his decision. He had been approached by team owners before. And when Rod Oslin came to him and talked to him about it, it was a very appealing offer and a chance to work with Dale Earnhardt. And I think I've been told in the past by Richard that he told Dale, do what you got to do. In other words, if this is an advancement for you, uh, by all means, take it. Uh, we've accomplished a lot together, and I'm not going to stand in your way. So Dale did that, and he went to work for Rod Oslin, but as he told us, that didn't last very long. That didn't last very long at all. And again, I want to reiterate the fact that it wasn't a big blow-up between Dale and Richard because, I mean, they had grown up together, and as he mentioned in the interview, they were born literally less than a mile from each other. Right. They were in cribs together, basically. But, Steve, I don't think I will ever forget the sight of Dale and Richard in that storeroom. Because when I got there, Richard had these papers in his hands, and he was studying them. I mean, close. And I thought it might be a bill. I thought it might be a contract. But it turned out, it turned out that it was Dale's blood work that he had just had at the doctor's office. Correct. They were talking about this part of your <laughs> cholesterol is good. Evidently, there's two types of cholesterol. Yeah, good and bad. Good and bad. And so to just see them talking to each other so seriously about Dale's blood work and you know his test results, I thought that was kind of eye-opening about well, their relationship. Doesn't that tell you about family? That their relationship goes beyond uh, boss and employee, if you will. Uh, it is all about family, and it always has been with Richard and Dale. Now, I also think that Dale has a huge amount of respect for Richard. As we were walking to the office, we were walking through the museum and some of the trophy cases, and we passed Richard's Presidential Medal of Freedom. Dale actually stopped in his tracks and pointed that out, and he said, how many people do you know that have one of those? And so, you know, he has a ton of respect for Richard. Exactly. And what you described to me is a very good illustration of it. As I said just a little bit earlier, this is about family. This is, this is not uh, a, an employee relationship type of thing. It's a family type of thing. So Dale does walk away from the comfort and stability of Petty Enterprises, where, Steve, he has worked his entire adult life. He was there when Lee Petty 
was driving. Almost immediately, though, he he's thrown into the chaos of what was going on with Rod Osterland having financial trouble selling to J.D. Stacy, right. and then Dale Earnhardt leaving. How hard must that have been for Dale to experience that so soon after leaving that basic stability that he had known for more than yeah. two decades? Well, it could not have been easy. It could not have been easy to find yourself in a position where there is such monumental change and the purpose for you coming there now goes away in the form of Rod Oslin and Dale Earnhardt. And you're left there with something that is not what you intended, not what you saw when you first came on board. I mean, how else could it feel but just very frustrated over the situation? Well, I think it was interesting that Dale mentioned a couple of times that, <laughs> that the fact that he didn't win a race with Dale Earnhardt and that being a black mark yeah. <laughs> against his resume. Yeah. Dale, brother, I believe your resume is okay as yeah, it is. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> but after Dale left to go to drive for Richard Childress that first stint, Dale also talked about J.D. Stacy, And Dale said that he got along okay with J.D. Yeah, he did. And I think that's a real reason why he remained. In other words, if he had been as frustrated with J.D. Stacy as Dale Earnhardt had been, he would not be there. Uh, I'm not surprised that he got along with J.D. Stacy. I mean, you, if you consider Dale's personality, he's a pretty easygoing guy. Now, he can flare up just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but as a rule, he's a, he is a very easygoing type of person. And he realized, I think, the situation with J.D. Stacy wasn't perfect, but he's going to help rebuild it if he could. And I think that's the reason he stayed. Finally, the conversation that Dell Emman had with Tim Richmond at Riverside when Tim Richmond came to drive for J.D. Stacy. Tim was struggling, and Dell told him to just relax, go out, drive like he would on the streets, and Tim wound up winning the first race of his Winston Cup career. What do you think it was about Dell Emman that caused Tim Richmond to pay him any attention? One to word, listen to respect. That? Yeah. Respect. We all know that Tim Richmond did not know a heck of a lot about cars, ex yeah. except how to race them. And he knew that Dale Inman, being his crew chief, was the guy that knew about the cars. And if he had any brains at all, which he did, he was going to listen to Dale because Dale had the expertise he lacked. And therefore, he had a lot of respect for Dale. I think maybe as a leader uh, and uh, someone who could nurture his career because he knew what Tim did not know. And so when he told Tim how to drive, Tim took him at his word and the results were good. One word, respect. I also thought it was pretty telling that Dale said that he never had any real trouble out of Tim. He said that one time he missed the start of practice and right, Dale got on right. to him about yeah. that. Well, uh, that again goes back to the relationship I think Tim had with Dale. One built out of respect and one built by having enough sense to listen to him. Okay? I don't think Tim ran into real trouble until he got his feet wet. Until he got more comfortable in NASCAR than... Uh, other portions of his personality. The bright lights in the big city. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Started coming out. So at this particular point in his career, he was simply there to learn. And I think that he knew that. And that's why one reason why Dale didn't have any trouble with him. Now, next week in the second and final installment of the conversation with Dale, we talk about him actually getting fired. Now, can you imagine firing Dale Inman? I can't imagine it either, but it happened.
Hello, I'm Buddy Parrott, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. So, Steve, the April 12th, 1990 issue of Winston Cup scene covered the Valleydale 500 at Bristol. Now, that was the first Bristol race that I ever attended. And to my knowledge, that is the last race that my ex-wife ever attended. (laughs) (laughs) But we won't go there. Uh, No. At all. (laughs) But when we were there, when we came up to Bristol from Nashville, I went out to the racetrack early. I think I went on Friday morning, you know, just to see the racetrack and all that kind of thing. And I got in a line of traffic and the security guards kept waving, kept waving, kept waving. And I wound up in the infield, man. (laughs) Oh, I was like a kid in a candy store. Great place to be at Bristol, by the way. (laughs) So go to the race on Saturday, my first ever Bush series race that I ever attended. And yeah, it got kind of exciting there. There is a very famous story about Pappy's response to Michael Waltrip's crash. So evidently, Tom Higgins calls into the desk at the Charlotte Observer and says, Uh Boys, you might want to hold off for a minute. Michael Waltrip's dead. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that's not funny. At the time, though, at the time. Yeah. Everybody thought that. And then, you know, after a few minutes, they peel off all the sheet metal and everything, and Michael Waltrip stands up. Walks out of that mess, gets on the golf cart, and he's whisked away to the Enfield Care Center, and he's fine. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Uh, Michael himself said that when they peeled off that last bit of sheet metal and he looked up to a blue sky and saw his brother, Daryl, standing right there, that's when he said, I knew I was going to be okay. After that happened, Pappy calls back to the desk and (laughs) says, okay, never mind, he's fine. So that's the Pappy story of Bristol and Michael Waltrip's crash. But he did get taken to the local hospital. And in the hospital, I had to laugh going through this paper. In the hospital, he orders this meal. And this meal consists of soup, (laughs) fish, chicken, steak, greens, macaroni and cheese, potatoes, cherry cheesecake, and something to drink. (laughs) Sounds like Dave Marcus. (laughs) And a Diet Coke. (laughs) So, yeah, he evidently crashing like that made him hungry. But he got out of the hospital at 8 a.m. on the morning of the Winston Cup race, and he goes out and he races. That's right. That's right. He started 20th. He finished 20th, 58 laps down, you know, after a couple of tire problems and got into the wall after one of those Well, you could say he had a bad day, but to get up and get out of the hospital and go to the racetrack and drive in a race for Michael Waltrip at that particular time, That was a good day, no matter what the results. Now, Steve, a trivia question for you. That Bush Series race in which Michael Waltrip wrecked, who won that race? L.D. Ottinger from Newport, Tennessee. L.D. Ottinger. I love that name. Okay. And he's a great guy. Let me ask you this one. What other claim to fame does L.D. Ottinger have? Uh, I know one. What? No, I can't say that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you done brought it up now, brother. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but uh, I don't think LD was a stranger to moonshine, perhaps. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but then again, I, I don't know how much he was. All I know is that he and Junior Johnson were good buddies. <laughs> there you go. Know. Hey, just connect those two dots and there you have it. No. The other piece of trivia that I had was 
he is on the cover of Second to None, the history of the NASCAR Bush Series. Oh. He's at the very top. Goodness. With all the kids in the car with him. So evidently that was a big thing to take kids, you know, in the race car and drive them around the track. And that's the photo at the top of the cover. I've, I've never heard of that book. What's it about? <sighs> Just kidding, of course. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> Even the cup race had its share of storylines. That was Dale Jarrett's first race with the Wood Brothers driving in relief of Neil Bonnet, who had gotten hurt at Darlington the week before. Right. Well, in that Wood Brothers Ford, he went on to win at Michigan the next year. Yes. But after bouncing around the Bush Series and the Winston Cup Series for so long, this is a stable ride for him. Yes, it is. And it was the first step toward the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you could very well make that case that that opportunity was the open door that he had been looking for all those years. So, yeah, that put him on course. Right. In the race itself, there were some problems with the sailor on the racetrack. It was very, very slick. There were quite a few wrecks. Absolutely. Uh, we were sitting on the backstretch, dead square center of the backstretch. So every time they would spin off turn two, we'd watch them go. Yep. <laughs> watch them spin by. So. There's several. Uh, uh, Rusty Wallace got involved yes. in an accident. Ernie Irvin got involved in two of them. <laughs> uh, Not Ernie. Oh, <laughs> Swerve and Irvin. <laughs> yeah. But and uh, Dale Earnhardt looped his car around too, and uh, it was and Dale Jarrett got involved Jeff in this term, yeah. yeah. And so we were sitting up in the press box, and we're saying to us, "Lord, isn't this ever going to end?" <laughs> this kind of stuff. <laughs> We're going to be here till old dark 30. and uh, But uh, that's the way it was. And you're right. The sealer had something to do with it. On the white flag lap, Ricky Rudd got into the back of Sterling Marlin, racing for third place, coming off turn two. Right. Sterling spins, and after the race, oh, that is such a vivid memory, just sitting in the grandstands. We could see Sterling running basically up pit road to the moving van right. that Ricky Rudd's Hendrick Motorsports team had at the time. Right. And he went straight up into the back of that sucker. Absolutely. He yeah. was not pleased yeah. at all. And one of his crewmen, Tony Shoemaker, showed up with a sledgehammer in his hand. <laughs> he did. <laughs> I don't know. What you got to love any story that oh, includes man. sledgehammer. <laughs> guy comes up with a sledgehammer. Well, he didn't do anything with it, but NASCAR did not take that very well, and he got uh, suspended for about three weeks. Wow. For that. Yeah, that's pretty uh, hefty. For actions detrimental to racing. In the paper the next week, Sterling said, you'll just have to ask Rudd about that. All I know is that he spun me out. I got up under the six car a couple of laps before that, the six car being, of course, Mark Martin. I had the courtesy to let him get straight. Evidently, Rudd doesn't have much courtesy. Mm -mm. Well, Rudd admitted he bumped him. I mean, yeah, he did. He, he, he said, look, I, I did it. I didn't want to see Sterling spin out, but I did it. He was holding me up, and I had a chance to win the race, I thought, if I could just get around him. And so that's what happened. And what it was is the old Bristol bump and run. Uh, this turned out to a bump and wreck. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if he had a chance to win. Well, let's put it this way. It was, <laughs> it was not going to finish in fourth place. <laughs> All that happened right behind a just a heck of a race for the win between Davy Allison and Mark Martin. And coming off turn four, Mark got up under Davy, and Davy won that race by eight inches. Eight inches. And that yeah. was not determined until after NASCAR yeah. reviewed the TV tapes of the finish. It took them a while, and they came out and said, eight inches. <laughs> <laughs> In the paper, 
there's a pretty interesting story about an encounter that Davy had at breakfast that morning. Davy said, we went to breakfast this morning at the Bonfire Restaurant in Bristol, and a guy with a Dell Earnhardt hat and a Dell Earnhardt t-shirt came up and shook my hand. He said, I just told all of my buddies that you're going to win the race today. I'm a Dell Earnhardt fan, but you're going to win the race. I thought, I don't believe in that stuff. I just passed it off. It's unbelievable it happened. I can't believe it. So a Dell yeah, Earnhardt fan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a Dell Earnhardt fan telling Davey Isles that he's going to win the race. So Mark Martin said after the race, that's a hell of a lot better than spinning out on the last lap and going all the way to fifth or sixth. There was a little self-protection going on there. I figured that if I crashed there, I might be able to make it across the finish line in second place. I was doing all I could do. I just did what you'd expect from me. I tried as hard as I could. The guy out front just had an enormous advantage. It was just a real difficult racetrack to pass on. It was back then. And this is where the old bump and run come in. And that's the reason why the old bump and run came so prevalent at Bristol. Mark just said, it's a tough, tough track to make a pass. And the guy in front has the advantage. And all Mark was trying to do was to basically win the race. And he said it right. He said, if he didn't get involved in the race or he spun, at least he could finish second, which he did. I just did what you would expect from me. I tried as hard as I could. That right there right. is what it means to be Mark Martin. I tried as hard as I could. Absolutely. That's how much he wanted to win the race. And at the same time, admitting that while he didn't, he tried as hard as he could. And that, yeah, you're right. That typifies Mark Martin. By finishing second, Mark did jump from seventh to third in the point standings, 121 officially. Officially. Behind Dell Earnhardt. I am not going to let that Richmond thing go. No, I was just going to say, you know, we all know what happened at the end of the year. Uh, Dale Earnhardt won his fourth championship by 26 points over Mark Barton, who had been penalized. 46 points at the spring Richmond race. I need to bar some blood pressure, man. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that had to be so frustrating for Mark, but he never really came out and blamed NASCAR for losing the championship or anything like that. He, he accepted what happened. I think he probably thought he had many more chances to win a championship, and he did have many more chances. Alas, <laughs> he never did it. And but I he think, tried as hard as he could. <laughs> I, you're exactly <laughs> yeah. right. And I think that uh, this is the reason why Mark Martin is named by many fans as the best NASCAR driver never to have won the championship. It's all right in there. Steve, the reviews that we get... They are absolutely what give me the confidence to keep going forward with this deal because the encouragement that we get, man, that's it's pretty cool. Every week I post a link to the show on Facebook and some of the NASCAR history groups that there are out there. And Will Riney commented on one of those posts that I made. And he said, if you are in this group and don't listen to the Scene Vault podcast, you are missing out. I have been a NASCAR fan since birth in the mid-1970s and consider myself a pretty big fan. I learn something new every podcast. The interviews are always interesting, and listening to Rick Houston and Steve Wade talk through current events and old issues is like nothing else. I remember the old issues, and it feels like the three of us are going through the pages together. I appreciate everything they are doing and look forward to the episode each and every week. Steve, how cool is that? That is cool. That is great. 
Now, on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and written review. Steve, we now have 47. 47. Once we get to 50. Bingo. Bingo. (laughs) I have to give away a copy of every NASCAR-related book that I've ever written. And you know what? I'm kind of looking forward to doing that. That is going to be a fine addition to any racing fan's library. Patreon.com slash the Scene Vault Podcast. Please help us out if you can. That's what keeps us going. Also, a one-time show of support you can do on paypal.me slash the Scene Vault Podcast. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next week.